I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upsound, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I am Abby Kinney. I'm an urban planner in Kansas City. And today I'm joined by Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. Really nice to see you. We're yeah. into July now. So like it's it's summer. And actually, when you listen to this, when people get this, I will be on my way on vacation for like three days. So Love it. Where are you going? Um, well... <laughs> Joe, Joe Minicosi and I are going to Disney World together for two days. Oh, that's uh, right. <laughs> just to hang out. And uh, I, I, my family goes to the Boundary Waters Wilderness every summer. And so I tend to like use that period of time to go on a trip. They, my wife goes with her her parents and all that. It's a, it's a family tradition. And they're yeah. limited size of the party they can bring. So I get left out because otherwise if I went, like some kid would not get to go. So I'm like, let all the kids, all the grandkids go and all that. Taking um, one for the team. Yeah, I take one for the team. So I usually like go do something that is interest to me. And I was going to just go back to Disney World the, this summer just for a couple of days just to hang and, and chill. And then Joe's like, hey, I, I asked Joe if he would come with. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to. So uh, we're going to go and uh, we'll, we'll be working hard, but we'll have a good time too. That's great. So you'll have a long holiday weekend because we are recording this right before the 4th of July and then you'll go on vacation. So that'll be a nice break, hopefully. Joe is, we like doing roller coasters together and I've got some great, <laughs> uh, some great pictures of us. We, we try to get the front car and uh, Joe is kind of like a yelling guy. You know, there's some people who are like, they ride roller coasters, uh -huh. and they, you know, they're like, whoa, uh, and Joe is like the, ah, like the screaming guy. <laughs> that doesn't so, surprise me at all. He's a, he's a lot of fun to, to go with because I'm more like the reserved, like, you know, whoa, whoa hang on. Like, oh, Whoops. Hang, Oops. and Joe is like the, ah, so it kind of like, I, I feel like when I'm with him, like I let out a little bit, like I'm like, awesome. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well. Hopefully you have lots of fun and take pictures to show to everybody. Thanks, I will. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> yeah. So the article that we are going to be covering today uh, was written by Chris Haxel for KCUR, which is a local affiliate of NPR. It is called Mayor Lucas Signs On to Test a Reparations Program for Black Kansasidians. So last week, a group of 11 U.S. mayors officially established a group called MORE, which stands for Mayors Organized for Reparations and Equality. This group has publicly pledged to establish pilot programs aimed at lessening the racial wealth gap that persists in cities across the country. MORE explicitly recognizes the need for local communities to lead the charge in confronting generations of wealth inequality and societal challenges. Cities involved have committed to partner with Black community leaders to identify strategic ways their communities can be supported in confronting longstanding issues of inequality. As KCUR points out, this approach is very much aligned with a framework proposed 
by you, Chuck, last year in an article entitled The Local Case for Reparations, which focused on the financial implications of redlining in Kansas City. In that article, you pointed out that the federal government is really not well-equipped to meaningfully restore disinfested neighborhoods and put Black Americans on an equal footing with white Americans. And they can certainly, you know, shell out money as the federal government does. And money, of course, plays a role in everything. But as you wrote, the proper approach is more nuanced than a simple transaction. I know that reparations conversations has become this toxic mainstream issue, um, when I really don't think it has to be. I, I actually think a locally driven approach to addressing these disparities and being honest about them is a framework that everybody can really get on board with because we want everybody in our community to have access to opportunities. I can't imagine an argument against that. (laughs) I think this is exactly what we need right now. And we need to come together in our communities to build ecosystems that unlock these kinds of pathways to success for everyone, regardless of skin color or what neighborhood you were born into. That's really what what this country is supposed to all be about. And, And so this is a really cool proposal. And um, Chuck, I'm I'm excited that that this is an approach that Kansas City and other cities are are looking at taking. Well, I have not had a chance to chat with Mayor Lucas at all, and I'm hoping that this September when I'm in Kansas City, I think it's September when I'm coming uh, this fall at some point, uh, that I will get that chance. And, and and I'm really grateful that they're talking about this proposal. Let's make sure that we're on the same page, and everybody listening is on the same page because. We were able to access from Joe and and Urban3 this fantastic data set. And we did a a 12-part series. Uh, The Kemper Foundation funded us to do this, where we took Joe's data and we wrote uh, basically narrative insights, a strong downs approach in regards to Kansas City using this data. One of the articles I wrote was on redlining. And redlining is thrown around, I think, a lot of people who don't dig into it maybe don't understand exactly what happened. I think a lot of people who do dig into it come at it from a a certain perspective. I feel like from Kansas City, the the data speaks really loudly. There was a period of time uh, that began during the Great Depression when the federal government started to make investments in local neighborhoods. And as part of that process, the federal government said, we're not going to make investments that are going to go bad. We're going to be prudent and we're going to invest in low-risk things. And so what they did is they sent out local people, realtors, uh, home builders, uh, city officials, and they said, help us identify neighborhoods that are low risk and help us identify neighborhoods that are high risk. I said this when I wrote it. I think in theory, you could have done this with a non-racial component to it. But in practice, you know, the, the alignment was almost perfectly racially broke down. The neighborhoods that were considered high risk were all first generation immigrant neighborhoods or Black descendant of slave neighborhoods, essentially. The neighborhoods that were considered low risk, those tended to be the white uh, neighborhoods that would soon become middle class and upper middle class. And if you look at the way that those those subsidies went, essentially people in the good neighborhoods were able to get long-term financing, low interest rates, uh, you know, very competitive loans in a competitive marketplace. And the people who were not in those districts did not get that benefit, that benefit from the federal government. The way I described it is, you know, one neighborhood was dealt 
aces and kings and another neighborhood was dealt twos and threes. And then they were put into a poker game together. And it's, it's not surprising, you know, it's very rare that you can screw up an ace and king hand. It's also very rare that you can ride a two and three hand to a win. And, and over time, that's what we've seen happen. I think the tragic thing for Kansas city, and then maybe we should talk about what the mayors are proposing here. I think the tragic thing for Kansas city is that if you look at the city as a whole, this was a self-inflicted wound. There's no reason why the neighborhoods that were redlined needed to be left behind. There, there was no good reason why this had to happen. And the fact that it did happen has robbed Kansas City, not only the, the people in those neighborhoods of opportunity and equity, but it's robbed the whole city and the whole region of a heck of a lot of prosperity you otherwise should have had. And so I, I feel like there's good reason here even beyond you know the reparations and, and social justice arguments that are generally made, there's a really sound, prudent reasons for mayors uh, to get going on this kind of stuff in these neighborhoods that were systematically left behind in the 1930s. Yeah, and I think mayors are the perfect you know start for leading the conversation in a more localized way. I feel like when topics of reparations come up in our national political theater, a lot of people have this gut reaction that I think primarily comes from what scale these kinds of discussions are are happening at. I, I'll admit that my gut reaction is a little bit like this. I mean, it's it's okay, the federal government played this major role in top-down social engineering, specifically targeting Black Americans and exasperating racism through their structural and legal means. Why on earth would we look to the federal government to then impose what they think is the right solution onto communities across the country? Haven't they done enough? <laughs> so that's kind of my my gut reaction. And understandably, we, we look to the federal government because they have all of our money. And the money is really, you know, kind of an important part of this whole conversation. But uh, what I think this organization gets right is recognizing that a framework and process for addressing these kinds of issues needs to happen at the local level in a more bottom-up kind of way. Uh, not really, you know, it reminds me of the monologue that you had last week that you put out around uh, re over-relying on expertise. Really, the, the idea that there is no, there is no uh, complete form of expertise or knowledge that that one person can have because they have some some high ranking position and these kinds of issues i think really do need to bring in people who know their communities more than anybody and they they can understand and give feedback to the types of interventions that would be helpful to people so in in a more bottom up approach i think that not only Will pilot programs and, and local interventions likely look different from city to city, but they might even differ from neighborhood to neighborhood? One of the frustrating things for me, particularly as it relates to Kansas City and to my hometown here, Brainerd, is the fact that both cities have done some really ridiculous, ridiculous financial transactions to chase after growth. Uh, your city, Kansas City, has, has done massive subsidies tax increment financing, tax abatement, other handouts and giveaways, waiving of sewer and water hookup fees and other things 
for large developers to come in and do projects that financially just don't make any sense. That they, they lower your overall financial productivity. Uh, they have low value per acre. They are like one-off projects that don't have a, a second generation or a second life cycle associated with them. And these are done like as a matter of course. And you know, you can line up a whole bunch of advocates in, in the city uh, of Kansas City or here in the city of Brainerd, and people will say, "Yeah, we need to do that because that's economic growth, that's development, that's job creation, and that will give us more money to do other things." I find those arguments to be wholly lacking because they're not based on the real financial numbers. No one actually sits down and measures, you know, how much do we get off this TIF and, and was this a good investment? When Joe's team did, it was appalling because it's not even close. If we wanted to get into, at the local level, uh, if we really want to get into the economic development game, I think we have to ask ourselves, like, why? What, what's, the, what's the final goal? Because the final goal is not just to do transactions. It's actually to make the community wealthier and more prosperous. It's to give people more opportunity, to give people more stability, to give people more wealth, to be able to either lower taxes or provide a higher level of service. It's to improve quality of life, right? Like that's why we do these things. And if you start with that premise, I think you start to look at a lot of these neighborhoods that were redlined and you say, we can take these same tools that we've been using foolishly over here on projects that are losing us money and robbing us of wealth. And we can take those tools and we can actually just scale them down to the individual. So instead of dealing with the corporation or the big entity that wants to do the big project, we scale them down to the scale of an individual. We do them with a little more thoughtfulness and a little more nuance. We have essentially a broader mixed portfolio of local investments that are going to, first of all, pay off and second of all, have much higher rates of return, like create really a neighborhood feedback loop in the positive direction. I think that if we just take race out of that and just look at that strategy, it is, it is obvious that that's what we need to do. When you take the racial component and add it back in, I think there's this impetus for mayors in particular and, and local politicians who, you know, I, the critique I have of of the approach that this Moore group has put together is that the first two things they want to do is basically petition Washington, D.C. to do something and then create a <laughs> committee. And I'm like, I'm done with Washington, D.C. I'm done with committees. Let's put your intent, your good intentions to work with the tools that we have. And if we get it moving in the right direction, maybe those other things will help out eventually. But let's not start there. Let's start with what we can do. And, and use that momentum to build support for other things, as opposed to say, let's, you know, Washington should fix this. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's start a committee to study this. No, let's take our good intentions and put them to work with the tools we have, because we can do that. And we can actually sell it to people. We can sell it uh, on social justice grounds if we want. We can also sell it on just sound economic grounds because it's a sound economic approach. Yeah, exactly. And I I share those critiques with you because when I was reading the article, the, the first bullet point was like petition Washington, D.C. And I was like, no, no. I mean, go yeah. ahead, make the 10th point like like it's a difficult conversation to have because I, I wrote another article, not the one on Kansas City, but I, I wrote one earlier where I, I pointed out that the median the median household income for a black family 
a couple of years ago, I wrote this, uh, is 20% higher than the median household income for a family in my city. My city is, uh, you know, 95% white. If you were to go to the, the very poor people in my city, which is predominantly poor people, and say, hey, we're going to have this, you know, reparations, it's a very hard sell because, you know, they, they, they look at themselves as being in a difficult strait and a difficult place. And like, why should I be taxed to help someone who, you know, at a median level is doing better than I am? I feel like a national conversation to be successful has to actually start from a, a local conversation that involves neighbors and the idea of treating each other with respect at the neighborhood level and, and, and build up from there as opposed to being like a proxy for that, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you can say Kansas City harmed itself and did harm to people living in Kansas City and now, you know, it's it's the responsibility of like everybody to come in and fix that. And I, I get that argument. Like I'm not I'm not like necessarily like wholly pushing back on that, but it should start and can't like get going. And I really applaud Mayor Lucas for actually, you know, despite the first two points <laughs> in the plan, <laughs> I really applaud Mayor Lucas for being like, yeah, you know, let's roll up our sleeves and do this. We we can actually put talk into action now. We don't have to wait you know, based on his comments from the article, it, it does seem like he is wanting to tap in to the local knowledge and the people who are already involved in communities. And I, I think that is the right thing to do to like actually start to talk with neighborhood leaders and come together to say, how can the city help you? What tools can we use and, and you know, that with the private sector to actually, you know, guide that, guide those tools and actually help people and, and, and reach the goals that communities are, are trying to reach. I think I, I get the question a lot from people in Kansas City about what other cities are taking a strong towns approach or, or doing these kinds of bottom up things. And the first places that really come to mind are not even places outside of Kansas City. They're actually neighborhood organizations that are doing really creative restoration work for their own neighborhood. And they're working as neighbors and they're they're doing things that nobody else is doing, to my knowledge. And, you know, one neighborhood over here is doing something completely different than another another neighborhood here. And they're focused on things like incremental development and working together as a community to make use of vacant lots and, and finding ways to help build wealth for themselves. And I think that's something that is really, I don't know if it's really special about Kansas City or if every city has these kinds of things going on, but you know, I can think of five neighborhoods in my own city that are all doing different things. And if I were Mayor Lucas, I would go talk to them and try to figure out what's working and what's not and how the city can continue to help support them and what other things are needed. I mean, that's a restoration type of program. And it's not really about just throwing money at a problem or getting the federal government to come in and solve it for us. I think that we often look to um, government entities to like provide us with this grand solution to solve these critical local issues. And people feel that progress is not made without that kind of government action. And in reality, I think it's the opposite of that. It, to recognize the work that local advocates are already putting in, and many of them maybe for generations have been putting in and actually supporting the work that people are doing and starting there. 
I, I look at all the energy and inertia that go into legacy programs. I, I, I wrote an article that will have come out on, on Monday this week, just about essentially the infrastructure debate at the federal level and you know how what we've done here in Minnesota at the state level in a bipartisan consensus is kind of reflected in the federal government's approach. And what you have is you have innovation defined as spending in a $6.5 billion bill, uh, $5 million on biking and walking. And you're like, well, that, that, that's a joke. Like, that's not innovation. That is really, really sad. That's, that's, that's a joke. I feel like we are overwhelmed, in a sense, with these legacy systems particularly at the local level, you know, the, not only are we kind of beholden to the mortgage market and the way that works and the things that get funded there easily and the things that don't, uh, but just the zoning, the building codes, like there's a whole list of things in that plan for reparations that, that we put together at Strong Towns that we need to rethink at the local level to allow neighborhoods to thicken up, to create real neighborhoods again, to create an economic ecosystem where people can start with a small house, expand it, build up, have a corner store, have a job, start a business, uh, do all the things that made historic neighborhoods such uh, engines of prosperity creation. I would like to see Kansas City because Kansas City has this, not only this legacy of redlining, but they have this legacy and, and it continues to this day of gratuitously investing out on the edge in the big project and the big expansion and the next utility corridor and the next highway interchange. And th this has gone disastrously wrong for you. And it, it's, it's weighed you down financially and robbed you of options and really robbed the community of energy. And, and I would like to see your city, Kansas City, and my city, Brainerd, which is on a smaller scale, done a lot of the same things, at the very least slow the momentum of those legacy programs and that legacy approach so that as this other part, you know, if we want to call it reparations or neighborhood investment or whatever we want to, whatever label we want to put on it, can start to gain hold and create those positive feedback loops and start to become essentially the dominant approach. I get really frustrated with people who say, well, Chuck, show me the place that's doing this perfectly, you know, show me. <laughs> that. And like you say, there's, there's a handful of neighborhoods in Kansas city that are awesome examples of a strong towns approach and are doing things, you know, in this way or that way that are really things we can build on. If I were mayor Lucas, or if I were on the mayor's team or the mayor's staff, I would want to give those places more oxygen and I would want to starve the worst of your development pattern of capital so that, you know, all that momentum and energy that's sucking the life out of your city just, you know, went away. That's a bold thing to do, right? And and that'll Very be the big yeah. question because I think that there are very alternative and competing visions for what the intent of growth is. I think for some, the the intent is to continue and finalize the spreading out or suburbanization of the city to kind of keep going down that path, which is in a lot of ways at the expense of investing in the existing neighborhood, the, the 1909 boundary of Kansas City. And I mean, there's a lot of neighborhoods that have been starved of of 
simple public works improvements um, and you see a lot of shiny new roads on the edge. So that, I think that's a political question. Your planners have said to me that it's a both strategy and I don't think it is. I think it's an either or strategy, really. That's a good question. And I, I agree with you. I agree that it is kind of an either or question because um, the city needs to make a decision about what's what's really important to them. And in, in a city like Kansas City, things can get incredibly political and these kinds of debates can be very difficult for a city of this scale to, to, to make consistent decisions on. It seems like everything is very um, uncoordinated, <laughs> I, I'll say, at the city in terms of what, what is the real goal Unfortunately, we don't have we're not a city that has endless amounts of money to invest in everything. The city can't be everything to everybody, and I think that's that's where it's going to get difficult. Uh not only for our city council but for future city councils. What you know, do they have the the boldness to actually say, no, this is important and we want to redirect course in terms of our public investments and how we're supporting our neighborhoods. Well, the, the reason I brought up the uh, the article that ran this week about the, the federal infrastructure stuff is because uh, when you actually break it down to spending, the spending never lines up with the priorities, right? If we say, you know, what percent of the budget should go to neighborhood development? I think people, you know, versus uh, development out on the edge. I think people, ver you know, versus maintenance. I think people will say, you know, 80% maintenance, 10% neighborhood development, 10% out on the edge. And then if you actually look at the budget, it's going to be like 80% out on the edge, you know, 20%, 18% maintenance and 2% neighborhood development. And, and I think there's an opportunity for local leaders to actually dig into the budget, understand what their commitments are, first of all, like what the stuff that they're building and, and how that creates this future echo commitment they have. I think it's an opportunity for them to dig into the budget and start to use some of those numbers to actually connect the rhetoric around things like neighborhood development and reparation strategies and, and, and how we approach uh, you know, building places that are prosperous for everybody to the budget and how we make a city that financially makes sense and grows wealthier over time and more prosperous. And those two things align at the local level. I think our politicians need to start talking about it in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a big lift, but it's going to be a big uh, lift. Mayor Lucas, if you're listening, we believe in you. <laughs> I, I do. I'm, I'm really yeah. optimistic. Um, I met a whole bunch of your mayoral candidates the last time I was there. I did not meet Mayor Lucas. And he was like one of them that I think we were scheduled and he didn't make it or whatever. And, they, you know, he's busy. He's got stuff going on. I was not that important. But I hope to fix that. I hope this time we get a chance to chat. And uh, I look forward to that. Very cool. Well, uh, we'll leave it at that today, but before we conclude, it is time for The Down Zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been up to this week, anything we've been reading, watching, listening to. So Chuck, what have you been up to? What's on your radar? Um, well, I, I don't know if I've told a story about my boat or not, but I got, I got <laughs> my, my family talked me into buying a boat last year. I'm kind of cheap, so it was a cheap boat. Um, I broke my foot, I, you know, the boat blew up. It was a disaster of a, of a summer, 
but, but I needed to fix it if I wanted to not just trash it. And because I'm cheap and, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, I couldn't find anyone to affordably fix it for me. So I decided I would fix my own boat. It was the motor that blew up. So I don't know anything about fixing motors. So I spent the winter like, you know, researching, watching YouTube videos. And I got to the point where I found someone who would fix it. I had to pull it out myself. I had to like, you know, disconnect everything, get it. I had to put it on a pallet. I shipped it to Pennsylvania. They fixed it. They remanufactured the whole thing. They shipped it back. It looks gorgeous. It showed up this week. I dropped it back in the boat. I hooked everything up. And dad was ready to be the hero. Um, and then it didn't work. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the troubleshooting phase right now. Like it's, I can tell it's very close to working. I, my guess is that there's something like small I've overlooked that is just preventing it from like fully turning over. But, uh, hopefully in the next 24 hours, I'm out on the lake with the family as dad, you know, the conquering hero, as opposed to that loser who spends all his time you know, out in this boat thinking it's going to someday run. So that's what I've been doing. So what does boat stand for again? Uh, bust out another thousand is what I yep. was told. When I <laughs> it's been more than that, uh, sadly. Uh, but um, yeah, hopefully, uh, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I have, I have hope for you. I believe in you. You will be the 4th of July hero. <laughs> um, it, it, it was supposed to be Memorial Day, then it got moved back to middle of June, then it got moved back to uh, the 4th of July. But yeah, hopefully, you know, I mean, it, it arrived this week and it took me like a couple hours to put it in. I was really proud of myself. It doesn't sputter. So I, I've got it narrowed <laughs> down to a couple things. I'm going to go home when we're done and start, you know, working on it. And hopefully, hopefully tonight I'm out on the lake enjoying the cool breeze. All right. Well, best of luck to you. Um, <laughs> you know, I went on a pretty long bike ride yesterday and Kansas City has built its first cycle track that runs all the way from the Crown Center area, which is kind of near the downtown area, all the way south to like set 47th street almost, which is where the country club plaza is. So it's this really long uh, route, the cycle track route. And I rode it yesterday and the whole way. And I was like almost laughing to myself because of how awesome it is. I, I don't know if that's the right reaction to have, but I was like kind of giddy and excited that there's like this, this really long pathway that I can now take and get, pretty far in the city and and just you know it, it it kind of opens up a lot of other routes that I could do and I just never realized how much I needed that until you're actually riding in it and you're like wow this like makes this makes uh commuting to work or uh just biking around for fun so much more feasible and yeah it's it's really cool to see that Kansas City has is not a um traditionally very bikeable town just because we don't have a ton of bike infrastructure. So it's cool to finally start to see some, some actual projects uh, sprout up. I did want to add something else. I watched a movie that I think most people have seen for the first time the last week called uh, Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> that is so 
good. And uh, I don't know how I hadn't watched it before. And I was like, I was actually laughing to myself after I watched it. Like, what a great movie. I can totally understand why it's a classic. And I wish that we made movies like that today. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're young. My, uh, I mean, I am old enough to have seen that in the theater when it came out. <laughs> um, so, but my Crazy. kids, we did, we did watch it with my kids. My kids went through a phase where they were like, you know, let's watch dad's old movies. And so one of them was Back to the Future. And yeah, they loved it. They loved it. It's, um, it is a good, it, I mean, it's funny because there's a few movies like this. Back to the Future is one. Um, I think like Jurassic Park, the original one is another one where if you're immersed in like today, it, the plot can be a little simplistic because our advancement in Jurassic Park, for example, our understanding of genetics and this is, is so much more advanced than it was when Jurassic Park first came out. When it first came out, that like blew everyone's mind. The idea that you could, you know, recreate, like it, it was, I realized it was part of like niche science understandings of DNA and genetics, but it was really not like mainstream understanding. Um, Back to the Future was a, a little bit like that, you know. Not that that not that the premise is as realistic as Jurassic Park could potentially, <laughs> but it 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 was. Um, there were some it, logical issues. Yeah, and, there's some and logical Back to the, to the Future. Yeah, when I was when I was watching it, I kept turning to my husband saying, "Well, that actually doesn't make sense because then he would be stuck in a time loop, and and this doesn't make sense." And yeah, but at the time. Like the, just the idea of like thinking through, like if you went back and, and got a sports book and could bet uh -huh. on people, like what, what the implications of that would mean. It was kind of like, wow, okay. I like, we never thought about that before. So yeah, it it's cool. a, it's a very cool movie and it's really funny and it's just, it's just weird to look back and, you know, because at that time they were, it was in, I guess the eighties. Um, so to number one, look back to see kind of a window into the 80s and then they go even further back uh which is pretty interesting and you know it's been so long and and they were talking about i i think kind of referencing like the the 2020s or the 20 teens and right. I, I think at the end of the movie he was like where we're going we don't need roads and i was like well that didn't happen <laughs> sorry about that yeah this <laughs> didn't work out that way sorry yeah exactly um. and i was like you know that's too bad. It'd be nice if we didn't need roads. <laughs> we had uh, the entire team here last week for a staff retreat. We did that in Brainerd and, and everybody came here and we we rented the theater out uh, one of the screens and watched the Truman Show. Um, That's a great which, one. I, yeah. I don't know if you've seen that before or not. But yeah. I, I've seen that many times. Yeah. It, it's, I think it's a great movie. I think the story is fantastic, but that's another one where, you know, this is before reality television, before, uh, you know, all, all the sagas that we've kind of become used to. And so that, that whole concept was just mind blowing at the time, I remember. But we got it so because I wanted everyone to see the architecture. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, um, yeah, everybody, everybody thinks of the Truman Show and they go to Seaside, Florida now, which is maybe not a good thing, but yeah, the Truman show is an amazing one. I haven't seen Jurassic park. I probably need to what? do that. I've, I've ridden the ride when I was a kid, um, oh at universal studios, I want to say, uh, Malcolm. So, uh, what's this? Well, I can't think of the actor's name. 
um, famous guy with glasses, squared glasses. Um, mm-hmm. uh, everyone's yelling at their screen right now. Like, uh-huh. saying, this is, <laughs> anyway, just like, I, I feel like the most iconic line, I mean, one of the top 10 most iconic lines in any movie is him uh, and his little rant about life will find a way and how, you know, you, you, you went out and did this uh, because you could, and you never stopped to think about whether you should. And it's this whole lesson in humility and it's just so powerful. Um, I love Jeff that. Gold, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, so many movies I, I haven't seen that I need to catch up on, especially. Well, I think I'm going to come, uh, I've got to spend an extra day now in Kansas city and we're going to go to the, uh, the world war one museum. We're going to go biking on your new bike way. We're going to sit around and watch movies. This is going to be a blast. I can't yeah, wait. This is going to be a blast. Yeah. We actually should go biking. We should get we should. like a bike, a bunch of people to meet and, and go bike the cycle track because it is, it is seriously awesome. It's, it totally changes the entire character of that street and how traffic functions. And seriously, I'm, I was, I was giggling to myself like giddy when I was writing it because it's just really cool. It's cool to see in a place like Kansas city. Uh, They did this in Minneapolis, wait till winter. And you'll think, well, no one will do this in the winter and it'll be like a highway of bikes. It'll be awesome. That's so cool. It's yeah. I mean, in Minneapolis uh, they have some of these and they are astounding just how much people use them year round. It's really cool. That's very cool. Yeah, there there's a ton of people using them. More bikes than I've ever seen outside of a critical mass. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's pretty cool. Well, I uh, will let you go today. You enjoy the 4th of July weekend. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, you too, Abby. Take care. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Bye-bye. Let me show you what I'm about to do.